All right. Last Sunday, um, apparently I struck a nerve a little bit because there were several people who came up and commented. We were talking about happiness. And um, we were talking about happiness as being equated with presence. And I had several people come up and, and say, hey, you know, I never thought of it like that before, which is the best thing that you can say to me. The teacher in me just lights up. If you say, I never thought of it that way before. It's like, yeah, because that's what we're really doing here. We're not trying to tell you what to think. We're not trying to tell you what to believe. We're trying to give you a little bit of a crack of the curtain to see a there out there that maybe you didn't see before. So if we ever tweak that and you see a different facet of something, that's exactly what we're trying to do. Put another log on your fire so you can just watch it burn and see where it takes you. That's really what this is all about. It's a style that Jesus taught in, and we are trying to emulate that. But last week, since I got several comments on this, it's like, okay, that kind of touched a nerve. That was something that wasn't quite apparent. And we were talking about this in terms of happiness, that, um, that whatever happiness is, what we think it is, it really moves in a different direction. You know. Now, first of all, we all want to be happy. Right? I want to just do a little quick review here because I want to kind of springboard off of where we left off last week and move ahead. Everybody wants to be happy. Most likely that is your goal. Even if it's not stated, it's really there. Everything that you do is in order to be happy. We talked about being a pleasure-seeking missile. You know, we're all pleasure-seeking missiles, going for pleasure and, and trying to avoid pain. And the fact that, that we find things in life that make us happy. And then we chase them over and over again in order to be happy. I was talking to uh, one of the groups just last week and we had this same conversation and we were talking about, you know, what makes you happy? And one person said, laughing makes her happy. I love that. Laughing makes her happy. Someone, and this is a great one, someone said, you know, when you open the, the can of Folgers coffee and you just smell that smell... That makes me happy. You know, looking at that smooth brown surface and the smell comes up. I thought that was perfect. You know, that makes him happy. Now, someone was talking about watching their son or daughter uh, playing. Watching their son and daughter at school and doing well made them really happy as a parent. That was a great one. Um, family and food makes people happy. Someone said chocolate chip ice cream made her happy. That was great. Work, art, music, sports, money. Disneyland, the happiest place on earth, right? Makes you happy. So these are things that make us happy. And we do them over and over because we want to be happy. We do them over and over expecting happiness. And sometimes we get it and sometimes we don't. Why is it kind of random? Why do these things that we chase after sometimes give us happiness and sometimes don't? When I was a kid... I remember reading a story that has stuck with me now, 40 years or whatever it's been. And it was about a little boy who looked in the mirror and saw this skinny little kid, and he really wanted muscles. You know, he wanted muscles, he wanted a, a, a physique. And uh, he was moping about, and the old man next door saw him and asked him, well, what was the matter? And so after some coaxing, he finally got out of him that he wasn't happy with his body and he wanted muscles. He says, well, I can give you muscles. He says, you can? He goes, yeah, but first I want you to mow my lawn. So he mowed his lawn. 
After that, he says, well, I need to dig out this garden right here. So we dig out this garden. And after that, it was carry over this fertilizer and, and spread it. And task after task after task, you know, errand after errand. Finally, the boy got really upset and said, well, where are those muscles that you promised me? I'm doing all this work for you. And he says, my goodness, haven't you got those muscles yet? And he ran back home because he'd been so busy, he had forgotten to look in the mirror and he had the muscles, you know. This is the way things sort of work. With these things that we do over and over again, we think they're bringing us happiness, but what they're really bringing us is presence. Think about it when you laugh. When you throw your head back and just laugh from your toes when you heard a great joke, what are you thinking about? Nothing. There is no thought in your head. That voice is finally quiet. You're just there in the moment. When you open that can of Folgers, and maybe it's U-Ban or Starbucks or Dietrich's, but whatever it is, and that smell just takes over your entire senses. For that instant, what are you thinking about? Nothing. Because if you were thinking about something else that took you out of that moment, you wouldn't feel happiness. See, we think that presence leads to happiness, but it doesn't. Presence is happiness. That feeling that we call happiness is really complete and utter presence. And every one of those things, the common thread that we just talked about, watching your children, food, Disneyland, to the extent that they make you happy, they're making you present. They're intense enough to blow all of that noise out out of your head so that you're right here and right now. So we chase the things over and over, not knowing that we're really chasing presence. And that's the key. You know, it's almost like if, if you had a cut and someone said, hey, there's a, there's a pond up in the, in the forest here that has magic water. And if you put that magic water, you know, it's going to heal you. And so you go up to the pond, you put the water on, and it heals you. So next time you get a cut, you're trucking off to the pond again in the pond and going back to the pond all the time. And then you figure out, well, it's because there's a certain amount of minerals and salt in the water. And so all you've got to do is go in and pour some salt on it. It does the same thing. It's the same thing here. If we understand that what really we call happiness, what gives us that sense of well-being and contentment, is presence, then we can do that anytime we want. We can do that right here and right now. Every situation, every circumstance. There doesn't have to be specific circumstances that make us happy. The happiness comes in completely different direction. And any task we're doing, any activity we're doing, can be infused with presence if we so choose, which is going to feel like happiness. So why does... This presence make us feel good, make us feel happy. Why does presence do that to us? Well, when we're present, kind of by definition, all our defenses are down. We're completely vulnerable. We're defenseless. If we weren't, then we wouldn't be present. If there was anything between us protecting us, if we had a shield up, if we had a wall up between us and whatever this moment was, whoever we're with, whatever we're doing, then we're not present and we're not feeling that sense of release. We're not feeling that contentment that we talk about. And in order to be able to do that, when our defenses are completely down, we need to be vulnerable. We need to finally let go. 
And then we experience connection. Connection with another person. Connection with just our environment. And so the core here, the bottom line, is really connection. Brene Brown says it so beautifully. She says, connection is why we're here. Connection is our basic human purpose. In order to have connection, though, we have to be vulnerable, and that's really frightening. So we're chasing all these things for happiness, right? But what really is at issue is presence. But we can't have presence without vulnerability. And when we finally do drop our defenses and allow ourselves to be present, then we experience the connection that then gives us the sense of why we're here. Meaning, purpose. We feel like life makes a certain kind of sense all of a sudden. And maybe just for that moment. But it's why we're here. It's the way that we were created. Connection is a spiritual goal that we should all be after. But we've got to see it that way. We've got to understand. Because we'll be chasing all of these things and missing the core, what we're really after. And it's going to be random with respect to effectiveness. Yeah, chocolate chip ice cream is going to do it most of the time. But if we understand what's really going underneath, then we can get really repeatable results. And here's the most important thing. We don't need just pleasurable circumstances in order to feel content, in order to feel happy. And the things that we have learned and the things that we expect to bring us happiness, the spectrum just opens up because now even in difficult situations, uncomfortable situations, we can still find that contentment if we will lean in and find the presence. Now what you should be asking, I suppose, by now, as, as good followers of Jesus, is did Jesus really say this? I mean, is it really there in the Bible someplace or am I just making all this stuff up? And I want to tell you, yes, it is. It is there in the Bible. But we don't really see it. And we don't see it because we're looking at Scripture from the wrong angle. And this is one of the bedrock principles here at The Effect, is that we need to look at Scripture from the viewpoint in which it was written in order to get out the original intent that was put there by the authors. We're looking at Scripture from a vantage point of two to 4,000 years later, from a culture that is so far removed from the ancient Eastern Hebrew culture which produced our scriptures. We're looking at it from a Western point of view, a logical, rational, linear point of view. And as soon as we do that, we're going to see different things than what's actually in the scripture itself. And so Jesus, of course, was talking about presence over and over and over again, but we'll miss it if we look at the words from this Western point of view. So what we want to do is turn this thing around and see how Jesus is reinforcing these basic principles of presence, mindfulness, unity, connection, over and over. And you take all those things and you put them together, he calls them kingdom. But we misinterpret that as well. And then what we do when we approach Scripture this way, we're asking questions of the text that were never meant to be answered. It's kind of like bringing a screwdriver to lay brick, you know, or the other one, bring a knife to a gunfight. But we're going about this in exactly the way that will give us the wrong results. So we're going to want to turn this around. Jesus is trying to bring people back to the sense of oneness. The ancient Jews are all about oneness. Ancient Jews are all about unity. And the way they define that is multiple things functioning as one. The name of their God, El, plural, Elohim, 
The idea there is multiple things functioning as one. The greatest oneness, all these things together. The primary prayer of Israel, the Shema, that appears in Deuteronomy 6. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohenu, Adonai Echad, means, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. The Lord is God. This idea of oneness is so bedrock, so driven into their psyche as a people. And yet, by the time Jesus comes on the scene, they had lost their way. And primarily under the direction of the Pharisees. The Pharisees had become the legal doctors of their time. They had broken down the law into thousands and thousands of subsets. They called them hedges and fences. And so they had taken this oneness and broken it down into many things. And these many things separated people from one another, separated those who were lawful from those who were unlawful, separated and gradated people in terms of how they were doing in life. And so the whole thing had gotten back to front. The whole thing had gotten so out of whack. And Jesus comes on the scene and he's trying to fix it. He's trying to get people to see It's not about all these things. It's about one thing. If you just focus on that, everything is going to change. The one thing that you are doing, the task at hand, the person you're with, the breath that you're taking, if we can be there to the exclusion of everything else, we can be kingdom. We can be content, characterized by contentment. Not by changing external circumstances, not by changing the things out there, not even the big things like poverty or society or political oppression. Sometimes Jesus is talked about as an activist, as a revolutionary. Well, he was revolutionary in his approach, but he wasn't trying to change those macro environmental things in order for the people to be free. He was trying to free them in the circumstances they found themselves, from the inside out. So it wasn't an external changing of circumstances. It was by becoming internally one, internally integrated, inside, outside, thoughts, words, deeds, everything coming to this oneness in the presence of his Father, in the presence of his God. So let's take a look at a couple of readings here, and see if we can see in there, looking beneath the text and looking at it like an ancient Jew, see if we can see what Jesus is talking about. At Mark 10, this is one that we have talked about several times in here, but we're going to look at it from a little bit different angle. This is the uh, story of the rich young man who comes to Jesus. So at Mark 10, verse 17, as he was setting out on a journey, as Jesus was, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now notice what Jesus does right there. Because the man comes to Jesus asking a specific linear question. What must I do? Okay, The subtext in there is there's something wrong. I can tell that there's something wrong. There's something missing. What must I do? But Jesus stops him in his tracks. Because an answer to a straight question like that is not going to get him where he needs to go. What Jesus does is stop him with a question and direct him back to one thing. The man is worried about many things, concerned about all this stuff. He has all these things on his mind. He's in this milieu of all of these details. 
He's unhappy. He's discontent. He's looking for contentment outside of himself, something that he can bring in and make himself feel better, to give himself a sense of security that he's okay. And Jesus is breaking that line. Why do you call me good? There's only one good. Why are you looking to me instead of within is the subtext here. To the Father who is through and imbuing everything that there is in life. He's trying to, right at, this, at the beginning, get him to start thinking in a different direction. Stop that line. So then he says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And the man said to Jesus, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. Which means he knew that the man was sincere. He wasn't just blowing smoke here. He really was trying, sincerely trying. Working his hardest. But something is still missing. And Jesus says, One thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Now when we read this, the immediate thing that comes to our legal minds, our logical minds, right, is greed, right? Disobedience, sin, a lack of of, of lawfulness, perhaps. The man didn't obey what Jesus was telling him to do. Therefore, he's going to face the consequences. But this isn't really what's going on here. The man was lawful. He was absolutely lawful. He made it a prerequisite to follow the law assiduously, because he was trying so hard to get something. But Jesus loves him and sees that in him. He's caught up in many things. He's thinking about all these issues. And he has found his happiness in the past in wealth and in power and then in religious practice. He's moving sequentially through all these things. And at the beginning, you know, there's a honeymoon period, he feels that happiness. It's strong enough and intense enough at the beginning to clear the decks for him and he finds presence, he finds a happiness and then it wears out and he moves to the next thing and then the next thing and now he comes to Jesus as the next thing and Jesus stops him and says, no, it's not about all this stuff. It's not even about me as a man talking to you right now trying to answer your question. It's deeper than that. Now unhappy because this isn't working, nothing is working anymore, knowing that something is wrong, Jesus tells him, what you need to do is to clear away all of that stuff. Let go of all of that noise so that you can come down to the one thing that matters. You've got to purge everything. Now I know something about this because we just moved. You know, purge everything. All that stuff that you're carrying around. I can't believe how much stuff that we gathered over 17 years. We're carrying all that stuff around every day in our minds, in our hearts to clear it all away. But he's not ready to do that. He's not ready to be able to just let these things go. 
He can't let go of the familiar, the old standby, the go-to, the thing that has made him feel better, the thing that has got him through the day. He's just not ready to do that yet. Now look at Luke 15, first verse. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So in their reading of the law, the way that they had developed the law, you could not connect with, you could not associate with, you certainly couldn't eat with, you couldn't touch, you couldn't let your clothes brush across someone who sat outside the law. And tax collectors and sinners, of course, by definition, were outside the law. And so Jesus is doing exactly what their version of the law demanded be separated. Jesus is bringing this together and they're upset about it. They're grumbling about it. You know, the thing you've got to know about the Pharisees is they're not happy people. How could they possibly be happy? Living in separation. Having as their code separation. You know what Pharisee means? The actual word? It means the separated ones. Because that was their code. That's what they did. They used the law to separate. Anytime we meet a person who is not happy... You have to think whatever unhappiness they give you, imagine what it's like to be in their skin. Living life as they see it. If that's what they radiate outward, it's Genesis. is deep within. These Pharisees are unhappy. And Jesus actually tries to minister to them, tries to heal them. He gives them a lesson in unity. Look what he says here. He told them a parable. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep, has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And this is, of course, a story about the importance of every single person, regardless of where we place them in the food chain. But think about it from this point of view that we are approaching it now. What is Jesus saying? You leave the 99 many things and you come back and go after the one thing, and you lay it across your shoulders, and you care about it, and you treasure it, and you cherish it, and you rejoice over the fact that it is with you, and it is one with you. But if these words, I'm sorry, or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it, And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I had found the coin which is lost. Obviously the same theme, the same pattern, the same idea. You sweep out, you clear out all of the other stuff, and you find the one thing. And you care about it, and you immerse yourself in it, and you throw a party. That's what this is about. Jesus is trying to show us. He's trying to show the Pharisees first and us by extension. Your unhappiness, your bitterness comes from your inability to get past the many things, the 99 things, and just come back to the one thing that is right in front of you, to be there, to focus on this. They create separation. This is Jesus talking about kingdom without saying the word kingdom. 
And of course, we misunderstand kingdom and we think it's something out there. We think it's heaven of the next life. The followers of Jesus in his day thought it was a political kingdom that was going to come and, and restore sovereignty to Israel and throw out the Romans. Both of us have it wrong. Both of us are taking the separation, taking kingdom away from the present moment. And Jesus is trying to bring it back. At Mark 1.15, he said, The waiting is over. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is now. And we can participate in it now. We don't have to wait if we are willing to be here and be now right along with Jesus. It's like code in there almost. We don't see these things because we're not looking at them from this worldview of the Jews, from this monolithic oneness that they had. At Matthew 13, now he's going to talk directly about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. Sounds a little weird, huh? And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Once again, see how the focus on the one thing overshadows the many things. Once he's found the one thing, he focuses on the one thing. He treasures the one thing. He can let go of all the other things and buy the field, buy the one thing. In this story, the most important thing to understand is that the man already knows exactly where the treasure is. He's not out there searching for it someplace. He knows where it is. He found it and he put it back. It's still there because it's right here. If we're talking about kingdom, it's right here. It's right now. It's never out there. It's the one thing that we can always come back to because it's always present. It's always within, among, and without. It's all. It's everything. It's God's presence. We know where it is. Don't need to look. All we need to do is let go of all the other things that are keeping us from this moment, this presence, this connection, and the contentment and the happiness that flows from it. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Obviously the same theme. Over and over and over, Jesus brings us back to the same theme. This spiritual journey is not about acquiring more things. It's about letting go of the things that are keeping us from the one thing, the thing that is here. Jesus is teaching in this typical Jewish, ancient Eastern fashion to people who had lost their way, lost the original meaning, the, the original intent of their own tradition. The prophets taught like Jesus, Take some time and go back and read Jeremiah. Read Isaiah. Read Micah. Read those prophets. And you see the same focus on this oneness. The same focus on this unity. This same understanding that law is not an absolute instrument. It's not there to separate the good from the bad. It's simply a guide, an instruction an encouragement to move forward into the experience of oneness. It's all there. It was all there for them and it's all there for us. But they lost their way because of the same thing that we do, which has become legally minded, to go ahead and, and put those rules back in place, to see things as separated into compartments. 
when kingdom sees everything as one. And Jesus is working really hard here. He doesn't hit the nail on the head. He doesn't tell something exactly because you can't do that. These things can't be transferred. They can't be just bestowed to you. But he comes alongside and he evokes a response. He evokes an experience. And it's harder for us than it is for the people who first heard Jesus because we are working outside that worldview. We don't even have a lost tradition to come back to. We have a completely different tradition. But if we can start to move and think, become kind of a dual citizens in these two worldviews, we can start to understand what Jesus is telling us and we can see how it works. Now, I don't know, some of you might be thinking, but wait a minute, you know, I'm working real hard at this. I'm trying You know, I'm showing up here. I'm doing my daily devotionals. I'm meditating. I'm doing whatever. I'm reading books. And my life is still really hard. It's still difficult. I don't feel happy. I don't feel like I'm turning a corner. You know? Is God not listening? Is is there something wrong that I'm doing? Why isn't it changing for me? This is such a typical thing that we all go through. But here's the thing. If you are worrying about those things, you are still focused on the many things. The real spiritual journey is a process of self-forgetting, not a more intensive focus on ourselves that just highlights the differences, highlights the distinctions, highlights the comparisons that we have with whatever ideal or standard that we have in our head. It highlights the judgment of ourselves. But if we can let go and start just divesting ourselves of all that stuff, then something else starts to take place. Like the rich young man, he was trying hard. He was working hard. He was doing the do. But he wasn't getting any closer to happiness because the focus was exactly in the wrong place. And when he finally comes face to face with Jesus, he's completely disrailed, derailed, the way we need to be derailed. Because it's our very expectation and concept of what this journey is about to kingdom that is taking us farther and farther away from kingdom as Jesus would have it. The young man, the rich young man, was still unhappy. He was chasing things that no longer made him present, but he was also too afraid to let go of those things because they were his crutch. They were his training wheels on the bike. They were the things that he thought he needed to survive. And so when confronted with that stark choice, he can't go there. This has nothing to do with him selling his actual possessions. It has everything to do with him detaching his identity from those things. Now you may be looking at the things that are holding you back. Maybe you can start to see some things that you go to, the things that make you happy, the main things that make you feel like you can survive. It's not that you have to give them up all at once. Start with one thing, though. Start shedding your skin like that snake, layer by layer. And understand, as you keep going back to the things, the chocolate chip ice cream, whatever it happens to be, that gets you through another 24 hours or another day, can you go a different way? Can you make a different choice? Can you move in another direction? This is what Jesus is talking about. When he says that you have to 
hate your father and mother and your son and daughter and even your own life if you want to follow me. He's talking about those kinds of relationships that we have with the things that are familiar that will get us through. He's not telling you to be disobedient or forget your family. He's saying you can't see them as the be-all and end-all. And if your concern for them keeps you in this mental pattern, you can't even be present to them. That's the irony. It will be our focus on these things that keeps us from just immersing ourselves and being present. Family is something that should give us the sense of happiness because we should be connected to it. But so often we're not because we're still concerned about so many things. All the family dynamics, all the things that we're still processing from years and years ago and maybe our childhood keeps a barrier up between us and family. Can we let that stuff go? This is what Jesus is talking about in figurative language. Take a look at your life. What is still going on there? Can you even tell if you are characteristically more happy than unhappy or more unhappy than happy? Where's the balance there? Do you spend more time disconnected, feeling twisted, feeling anxious, feeling tense? Or do you feel more time really feeling like you belong? that you're part of something greater than yourself, in a sense that you're characterized by contentment. When a moment does not contain those elements that you think lead to happiness, your chocolate chip ice cream, can you choose to let go of those things and find a deeper place? Just lay one thing across your shoulders like that lost sheep. Let go of everything except the thing that is right in front of you, Throw a party. Enjoy that moment. If it's the rain, you enjoy the rain. If it's the sunshine, you enjoy the sunshine. Whatever comes, can you let that be the one thing that brings you into kingdom, that brings you into this sense? Be honest with yourself. That's why Jesus said that the way to this life that he was talking about this abundant life. He said, I came to bring them life and life abundantly, life to the full. Are we living life to the full? He said, very few people actually go there because the way is narrow and the gate is constricted. But the way to destruction is broad and many go that way. Not talking about heaven and hell. He's talking about this process right here, right now, because it's difficult. It's scary. It's risky to let go of the things that you have built up through your whole life that makes you feel like you can continue on. But if we can do this, something else happens. And of course, the irony is that the things that we cling to are the things that are making us unhappy, the things that are keeping us from presence. And then we blame others, we blame circumstances, we blame God, we do whatever we have to do, again, to get through another day. But it's all just about a choice that we make, each moment to choose. Kingdom is momentary. It's always here. It's always with us. But our participation in it is momentary. We choose right here and right now if we are going to be focused on the one thing or the many things. And when we choose, we're here. And as soon as we move to the next moment and we don't choose, we're not there anymore. But like that string of pearls, eventually we are characterized by kingdom because we are choosing moment after moment to be here, to be present, to be present to God's presence and to start to understand what that really means in the first place.
I wanted to read you one last passage. And this is from a book called Tuesdays with Maury. And uh, there was a young man who loved his old teacher, his professor from college, so much that when he got, uh, got sick and was, uh, was slowly dying from ALS, that he would fly all the way from Detroit to Boston every Tuesday and spend the morning with Maury until he finally died. And at one point, Mitch, the young man, asked Maury, if he ever felt sorry for himself because of his lot in life, for the the disease that he had gotten and the situation that he found himself in slowly dying. And Maury answered him and said, sometimes in the mornings, that's when I mourn. I feel around my body. I move my fingers and my hands, whatever I can still move. And I mourn what I have lost. I mourn the slow, insidious way in which I'm dying. But then I stop mourning. Just like that. I give myself a good cry if I need it, but then I concentrate on all the good things still in my life, on the people who are coming to see me, on the stories I'm going to hear, on you, if it's Tuesday, because we're Tuesday people. (laughs) Mitch grinned, Tuesday people. Mitch, I don't allow myself any more self-pity than that. A little each morning, a few tears, That's all. There it is. That's the choice. Whatever situation we find ourselves in, whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, we give ourselves a good cry. That's human. We feel what we feel. We have no choice in our emotions. We let it wash over us. We welcome it. And then we choose to focus on the one thing that is right in front of us, the Tuesday person who comes the Wednesday person who is there, whatever it happens to be. To focus on that to the exclusion of everything else brings us back to now, brings us back to the moment, brings us back to God's presence, which is all healing, and can transcend the circumstances in which we find ourselves, can give us the sense that somehow this thing is going to be okay, and we don't have to worry. Even if we are looking at our impending death, we don't have to worry. We come back here, we come back now, we come back to presence, and most importantly, we reconnect to the Tuesday person who is right in front of us. And in that moment, we find God. We find ourselves. We find meaning and purpose. And life makes a certain kind of sense that makes it all worthwhile. That's kingdom. That's where Jesus is driving us. It's our choice, and it's a muscular choice. You have to actually do it, do something, move out. But we can do it, because Jesus said we could. Let's pray. (laughs) I receive! Preach it, sister. Father, we're so grateful just to be here this morning. Ah, Infuse us with a sense of encouragement, infuse us with a sense that this is something that we can do. That regardless of what we're feeling at the moment, regardless of what life seems to be handing us, we can choose you. We can choose this moment. We can choose presence and connection. And we can be transformed by that. 
It seems so hard to believe sometimes, Lord, so help us with our unbelief. Help us to just take whatever small steps we need to take in a direction that will lead us to an understanding of what this is all about in a way that we won't be able to express clearly. But we will know that we know that we know that you are here and that you're for us and with us and no one can stand against us if that's the case. Help us, Father. Thank you for loving us as you do. Never let us forget. We can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.